Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. And it's really about how children's right to life, their right to their mother and father, their right to innocence, and their right to an intact body are under attack. And like all of these fundamental child rights are under assault right now. And children have a right to innocence. What we put in front of them matters. You know, what they see, what they're exposed to. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. First of all, if you're listening, thank you for your interest. For those who are subscribed, thank you for your fidelity. And for those who donate, thank you for your support. We do not have sponsor here, and maybe that also means we don't have masters. And so if you continue to benefit from our programs, if you want to continue to benefit from our programs and to listen to us here or watch our interviews on YouTube, follow the link and please make a small donation. Today's episode is indeed one of those that are way easier to broadcast when one does not have sponsor or masters. And I think we might make some people uncomfortable, perhaps including our own own audience. But as our title says, there are things that we need to say, truths that need to be told. And one of them, one that the Austin Institute has defended since its foundation, is that family matters. And not only that, the form and the structure of our family matters. To discuss this topic with me and to talk about the most common mistakes, I would call them mistakes that our contemporary culture makes in this regard, I have a true expert, a woman who has testified the goodness of the family in all sorts of platforms, from the United Nations to Twitter, filing amicus briefs to the Supreme Court and publishing books. And her name is Katie Faust. Welcome, Katie. Great to be here. I'm so glad to be on your podcast. And I will just say, don't just make a small donation, make a large donation to the Austin Institute. You know, they've actually been pretty formative in some of the work that I've done. I feel like their resources have helped to make me an expert to help me better be able to articulate and defend these fundamental child rights. You know, we're, we're going to take over the world with these child-centric arguments, but you can't do it you, you need good research and you need good data. And Austin Institute is one of the places where we get it. So you really should throw your support behind not just this podcast, but their organization, in my opinion. Thank you very much, Katie. This wasn't agreed before you said it. So thank you very much. Thank you. And I'm, you know, I must confess that some of it is equally true. I remember defending the family as a lawyer and using Professor Ignera's studies in what I was writing way before being here. So what you say is true. So Katie, I mentioned some of the platforms, some of the places in which you have already defended the family, but could you tell our audience when, how, and why you started to be an advocate in this field? Yeah. I always say the short answer of why I'm doing what I'm doing is the left broke me. Like I'm generally pretty easy to get along with and I like to keep my friends and I like to keep the peace. But the other side went so hard, so fast, so far that especially on the topic of family redefinition, beginning with the redefinition of marriage, that I just saw the incredible harms to children that were going to be done in the name of equality for adults. 
So that's when I felt like I needed to get involved was the narrative that, you know, kids don't care if they have two moms or two dads, which functionally means kids don't care if they've lost their mom or dad. And I've been working with kids long enough in enough venues and and had enough conversations with them to know that there's probably nothing kids care less about. uh, Kids care more about than the loss of their mother or father. Like it is one of the things that impacts their heart, their their physical outcomes, their mental health, their academic health, their ability to form and maintain their own relationships. And it just grieves them. I mean, it really is sort of a primal wound in their life. And so for me, getting into the discussion on marriage and family really just at the bottom was about child defense, that we saw people rising to defend children in issues like abortion work, which is incredible. But we also needed a an authority, a voice, a platform that was willing to defend kids in the marriage and family world as well. So what we do at Them Before Us is, um, so I founded Them Before Us in 2018, and we address every marriage and family issue from the perspective of the child. So the definition of marriage, divorce, same-sex parenting, transgender parenting, cohabitation, sperm donation, egg donation, surrogacy, adoption, polygamy. Like if it intersects with marriage and family, We are going to center that conversation on the child and insist that all adults, single, married, gay, straight, fertile, and infertile, bend to the rights and well-being of kids rather than insisting that children sacrifice for adults. Okay. And you call it sacrifice, but how do you know? How how do you know that children suffer? So this is a really important point, actually, because we have spent decades normalizing child loss. You know, we have had... But I would say, you know, three different fronts, culture, law, and technology have all worked together to minimize the voices that say kids need a mom and dad. And so we have normalized, you know, all forms of modern family and and let the listener understand when you hear the word modern family, that's just code for child loss. The child had to lose something to be in that family, a full or partial relationship with their mother and or father to be in that family. So how do we know that children lose something, right? That's the main tenet of our work is we're going to show you the harms that come to kids when they lose their parent to death, divorce, abandonment, reproductive technologies, even if they're subsequently adopted, right? The challenges that kids face. And we have spent a long time trying to sweep these realities under the rug by cultural mantras like if the adults are happy the kids will be happy or the kids will be fine or kids don't need married parents they need happy parents or biology doesn't matter love makes a family or kids don't need moms and dads they just need to be safe so we've had all of these sort of cultural narratives that have been shaping how we think about marriage and family and so one thing that we do at them before us is we say no we're going to begin with the realities of the child Children come from a man and woman, self-evident, but then we're going to bring to you the research and the stories of the kids themselves who say they are advantaged specifically when they're raised by that man and woman in a married relationship. And we are going to make very clear through stories and studies, the harm that comes to children when they lose one or both. Yeah. And I not, not because, you know, I abstractly agree with you, but As the audience knows, I know I'm a child of divorce. I'm starting a group on this topic precisely to explain basically to everyone that this is. So I nod because I exactly know what you're talking about. But I also relate to something you wrote. So in your letter to the Supreme Court Justice, 
a years, a few years ago, you mentioned that you you yourself grew up saying something that ultimately was not true, and I relate to that a lot. So what you say is like I would say right that I'm I'm happy I'm I'm okay in my situation, which I would like for you maybe to describe if you want, but you were lying. So first of all, you know, do children lie about this? If they do, why do they do that? Yeah. So the the letter that you reference is one that an open letter I wrote to Justice Kennedy at Public Discourse in 2015 ahead of an amicus brief, uh, several amicus briefs that children with LGBT parents filed in the Obergefell case. So my background is my parents were married until I was 10. They divorced. My father dated and remarried. And then my mom repartnered with a woman. And so for my middle school years, my high school years and on, you know, when I was in her home, it was the home of my mother and her lesbian partner. And so I love my mom and I love her partner. Like we are hopefully going to spend Christmas together. I hope we're very connected and they're a big part of my life and my children's life. So this doesn't have to do with animus or hatred or phobia or anything like that. But, you know, when I was splitting time between the home of my father and my mother and her partner, you know, I, in both of those homes, I knew what to say to ingratiate myself to the new people in their lives. Let's just put it that way right? That there is some instability, that there is some uncertainty that goes along with that new world that kids are in. And you do understand that the person in their life has some hold and some power and some influence. And it's not like there was anything cruel taking place, but kids want to please their parents. And what's so interesting to me is when you look at the three areas of child loss that we focus on at them before us, that is the loss of a parent partial or fully through divorce, the loss of a parent because kids are raised in a same-sex relationship or the loss of a parent because reproductive technologies, third parties were used to create children. We call those desire-based losses. They're not tragic losses like the death of a parent. They're, They're losses the kids experience because adult desire is prioritized above the rights of children to be known and loved and raised by both mother and father every day. So there's distinctions in those three different areas, distinct challenges that children of divorce have, that children of same-sex parents have, that children of reproductive technologies have. But there's also some similarities between all three. One of those similarities is that there is almost an inversion of the parent-child relationship. So normally parents are supposed to be understanding, supportive, and accommodating of their children. That's kind of the definition of an adult almost. But what we see in a lot of these desire-based child losses is the child then has to be supportive, understanding, and accommodating of their parents' choices or their parents' new lives or their children's, the parents' new families or world or whatever it is. And so I, you can hear echoes of that, you know, even in me where I thought I need to cheer on my parents. I need to make them think that I love what's happening. And I did love them and I was still super connected to them. But I think kids sort of have that natural longing to please their mom and dad. So that definitely came out for me in some ways. I adore what you just said. I, again, I can relate on everything. There is something, a passage that, you know, even when we know this truth, then some sociological studies that show the difference between people raised in a way and another make you see that what you did as a child is not normal. You think that, you know, what you did, everyone did. And there is a passage in the book that we will read in the reading group divided, yeah, between two words. Yeah. The, in one of the stories is about how much, you know, the child that becomes the spouse or the substitutes the spouse in a child, in a, in a children in a, in a broken home due to divorce becomes very uh, attentive to the, the, the parent birthday. 
And, mm. you know, and I recall like that my first, you know, a first big gift that I made to my mom when I was very, very young, but everyone around us would just compliment the child for how much love are you showing and like, right. And how lucky is this mother when instead is like, as, as children start cheering up, then, you know, they can also substitute the figure that is absent mm. and like take care in a way that, you know, that they don't see otherwise in the household. You said something also that I find perfectly true and very profound, which is these are all desire-based losses, which I guess is why it's something, one of the things that I like is that usually start your defense of the family and of the traditional family, precisely starting from no-fault divorce, starting from, right, that that was, that was the moment where things changed. And so these desire-based losses, whether, you know, be it because uh, one of the parents wants to live with the LGBT partner or, you know, use, they're all, they all have this thing, something in common, you say. But so what exactly is this thing? What shifted when, mm-hmm. when no-fault divorce <laughs> happened? Well, you know, we, at our, at, in our work, we always kind of talk about how culture, law, and technology are the three forces that are working against kids. So what about law, right? No-fault divorce was the original redefinition of marriage, right? That was the first time that we took what used to be the child, most child-friendly institution the world has ever known and really communicated, messaged that it was really just a vehicle of adult fulfillment. It used to be that, you know, marriage was defined by these, these fundamental norms of complementarity, right? Both a man and a woman, monogamy, you know, monogamy, married only to one other person, exclusivity, right? Excluding all others and permanence that it was going to be till death do we part. And so you've got these four norms of marriage and no fault divorce was the removal of the first norm. It was the removal of permanence. And it was the taking away and saying it no longer has to be a lifelong union. What we communicated was if you cease to be happy, it can cease to be a marriage. So previously, prior to no-fault divorce, there have always been reasons in civil law that we recognize that marriages needed to come to an end, whether it was through um, adultery, abuse, abandonment. You could make a case that somebody was at fault of violating their marriage vows. And then the courts and all of society would side with the innocent or the faithful spouse, right? But in the no-fault divorce realm, you know, people wanted to get to divorce Nobody was at fault. They thought, well, this is really mean. Now we have to lie that somebody's committing adultery. We have to lie that there's abuse. Wouldn't it be easier to just say, hey, nobody's at fault here. We're just going to end things. And so, you know, Reagan in California was the first one to legalize no-fault divorce. Most of the states quickly followed. And now every state in the nation has some form of no-fault divorce. That is when we started to redefine marriage. And then, of course, same-sex couples said, well, if really this is not about the well-being of kids because if it was you wouldn't have no fault divorce and really if marriage is just a vehicle of adult fulfillment well being married to another woman fulfills me so if this is really just about adult connection and happiness two men or two women can connect and make each other happy so there goes complementarity and of course now what's on the horizon is polygamy right if we if we've done away with the norm of permanence if we've done away with the norm of complementarity we're going to do away with the norm of monogamy soon as well. Yeah. And also what you say, you know, you talk about feelings and happiness. There's something that strikes me there. With a no-fault divorce, we started thinking about 
marriage is about happiness. And ha- so we reduce happiness to feelings, first of all. Because we don't only say marriage is about happiness, but we reduce this happiness as something that is not, does not take into account, you know, time or like accomplishing something together in the long run, sticking together when the times are hard. No, happiness is exclusively emotional. It's exclusively a feeling. And in that, when you add kids to the picture, that what changes is that we're also assuming that not only marriage, but the parenting, the parenting happiness, like the, a good parental relationship is a relationship where both parents and children are happy. And again, this happiness reduced to feelings. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all know how important it has been in our life that, you know, if not a family member, it can even be a, a professor or a teacher that was really hard on us for years, you know, and we could not make him smile or her smile. And then and he was, they were just like teaching us a very good lesson. And maybe then, you know, they become basically the person that we love the most. And there's a lot of affection afterwards, but it might include time where, where things are not necessarily emotionally correct. Everything that matters in life involves some short-term death. You know, everything that is going to profit us in the long-term requires short-term sacrifice. I mean, you can see that certainly in marriage. You can see it in parenting. Like, it's high cost. Having children is high cost in terms of emotion and investment. Oh, my gosh, but the long-term gain, right? You can see it in things like working out. Like, it's not awesome getting on the stair stepper and, like, really, really dripping for 30 minutes. Like that's not great, but you know, the fitness component and the long-term game is fantastic. Everything that matters in life is going to cost you something in the moment. And, you know, we've kind of told this narrative about marriage and family that if it costs you something, then you should probably get out of it and it's not worth it. And now we've sort of enshrined that legally as well. Yeah. And it's taking, you know, it's, this thing is going in other realms. Yesterday in a reading group, we were discussing how technology is increasing this because we have lost, completely lost every kind of patience. So with one click, right? I need to get that result with one click. I need to go there as fast as, but like there is a, we've lost the appreciation of the process. Mm-hmm. And, and something about it, you know, what you say, the working out and like when you're, when your muscles are in pain. And I think, I don't know, I'm not married, but I think that one of the rewards of marriage, probably the greatest rewards are feeling again, very emotionally connected to your, your husband or your wife, maybe after a couple of rough weeks or even of rough months and like knowing that you made it together. Now, because you are married, that's a question that I have for you. Like, do you see that in your marriage? Would you, yeah. How would, how would you describe that? Maybe even compared to what you have seen in your parents. Mm. Well, you know, we needed to learn how to be married. Like both of us came from divorced homes. And so, I mean, I stayed very close to both of my parents, but we didn't have that model in our life to figure out how do you do this? And, um, you know, I talk a lot in my work in terms of child rearing or just kind of ministry in general. My husband's a pastor and I talk a lot about how you become what you behold. And we certainly see that in family structure, right? Whatever it is that you're beholding as a child, that's sort of the default of what you're going to become. And that is why you see that children of divorce are more likely to divorce if they even marry. That's why you see that children created through sperm and egg donation are more likely to donate their own sperm and egg, even though they tend to be unhappier, more mistrustful and more troubled than kids from biological homes. You know, children raised by single mothers are more likely to become 
teen single parents themselves, right? We become what we behold. And so when my husband and I got married, we needed to behold something else. We needed something to behold that was different than what we saw in our own lives. And so whatever church that we were at, we would just find a couple families, you know, where the husband and wife had been married faithfully and they had a a relationship we admired and they had kids that we thought were fantastic. And we just watched them and we followed them and we just gave them permission to like shape us and tell us what to do. And, and it was great. Like the church actually sort of discipled us in, in how to be married because we didn't go into marriage knowing exactly how to do that. Oh, and it's a great example of docility too. Like acknowledging that your own ideas or instinct or gut feelings, you know, might be wrong and you might need to listen. So, I mean, what an example you set by saying that. I wanted to ask you something more related to also your own experience, which was, you know, something that you might want to say to same-sex couples that are listening. I know that we have a lot of supporters that have, you know, same-sex attractions. And if they really want children, what I would like, you know, the answer is like, you, you turned out pretty well after all, right? Like, it's not that your experience killed you. And I hear this comment made to a lot of children of divorce or like, you know, why, why would you tell them don't do it? Like, what are the bad outcomes? Well, if you Google Katie Faust, you'll see things like, woman with two mothers campaigns for traditional marriage. I don't have two mothers. Nobody has two mothers. Everybody has a mother and father. And thankfully, I was still connected to both my mother and father before and after the divorce. And a lot of what I'm able to do as directing a nonprofit, like traveling globally, you know, meeting with heads of nations or states or whatever, I do because my father instilled in me a confidence that honestly, mothers don't give their daughters. <laughs> like there really is something about a man in your world, shaping you, helping you navigate um, the world of men. And so thankfully I had that, even though I only got, you know, I got 50% of what I wanted, but I still had that, you know, male influence and male involvement. And a lot of what I do is sort of a credit to the confidence he instilled in me. I'd say a lot of what I do is credit to my mother too, because she is so long suffering and she's really able to see all sides of the argument. And so in that sense, like I really have a lot of empathy for people that are on the other side of these issues from me. So I, I look at like my own mom and dad and the ways that they shaped me. You know, a lot of people will say to me, hey, what does your mother think about what you're doing, right? Since she's mm -hmm. been in a same-sex relationship for more than 30 years. And my answer is, my mother knows that two men could never replace her. That is my message. Like, do you understand that the family redefinition machine would tell me not, I mean, what they think they're saying is, oh, your mom can marry who she wants. But what they're telling the child is your mother is inconsequential to your identity, to your development, you know, to your sense of what it means to be female. And she is so inconsequential. You could swap into unrelated men and have zero, you know, zero impact on who you become. It is the most like mother dishonoring thing that you could say is this message that, you know, moms and dads don't matter and kids just need to be safe and loved and love makes a family and blah, 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 blah. Literally, you're saying no mother or father matters to their own kids. And both of my mother and father mattered to me. So, you know, the message for people who experience same-sex attraction is you, you lesbian, probably could be an amazing mother. You gay guy could probably be an amazing father. Like my mother is 
in a same-sex relationship. And she's literally better than your mother. Like, I guarantee you that. She's like the best mother ever. But she can't be a father. Her partner can't be a father. Neither of them could have replaced my father. Thank God, neither of them tried to replace my father. So it does not matter, you know, how good of a parent you think that you're going to be. It's an injustice to cut your child's other parent out of their life. Someone is going to do the hard thing in that situation. Is it going to be you that conforms your desire for a family to your child's right to be known and loved by their mom and dad every day? Or is it going to be the child who conforms to your romantic desire and has to lose a relationship with a genetic parent, has to be starved of the mother love or the father love that satisfies their soul, that is going to have their development impacted because a male and female parent in the home maximizes their development. And if you want to challenge me on this, like I've got about couple dozen stories of kids raised by same-sex parents in the book, read them yourself. And, and then, you know, put your finger to the wind and see, does this ring true? And the answer is yes, it does. Because this is literally one of the most universal human longings to be known and loved by the two people responsible for your yeah, existence. Otherwise, and yeah, otherwise you and I would not be talking about this right now, risking, yeah, you know, right. risking being canceled, careers, jobs, yeah. and like being hated, people protesting in front of your house. Like, it it just reminds me like of the reason why Russia stopped having, you know, the, no, it was it. The the experience I think was the last one in with the kibbutz in like Israel that there were this communal um, childcare and like all the kids together. And then that stopped because those children grew up and said, stop doing this. Like children want their mother and father, which... I mean, there is this this decision not to want to hear and not to want to believe, but um, you're a great testimony and you're doing a great job. And you mentioned your book, Them Before Us. I know that you just came out with another book, Raising Conservative Kids in a Woke City. And we're going to have a link. I know it just came out as we speak. So for once, you know, I, I have a justification in not having read it yet and studied it maybe. But speaking of the Them Before Us, you know, it's also the name of your nonprofit, Children at the Center. I love this idea. You talk about policies that center on children. But my question is, how can we make that happen if, A, they should not please vote, even though we asked them for their opinion on everything now, including their own gender. But if it's not them advocating for themselves, my question, of course, is provocative, but like, who advocates for these children when they're not around? When the number keeps decreasing and our ward keeps treating them as adults? We started them before us because there was nobody formally advocating on behalf of kids. We try to bring the child's perspective to everything that we do. You know, we do that in our articles, in our interviews. Like I'll have conversations about surrogacy, for example, and somebody will say, well, let's boy, this must be so hard on the birth mothers or think about the women who are struggling with infertility and this is their way to have a child. And I'll say, adults have interests, children have rights. I'm here to talk to you about the child's perspective. I understand the adults are struggling or maybe they need some extra cash or whatever it is, but I am here to talk about the child, the only one that cannot speak for themselves, the one that can't hire lawyers, they can't file amicus briefs, they can't do interviews, they can't write academic papers. But they are ultimately the one with the most at stake in this conversation. And I am going to advocate on their behalf. And what we're doing is we are building a global movement, a global coalition of people who are willing to say, I'm going to speak on behalf of the child. I'm going to bring the child's perspective. And so it's been very interesting as our message has spread. Um, we watch our followers like on social media who will 
comment on, you know, a, a, a sperm donor reveal party, you know, where somebody's revealing the sperm donor that they chose. And our commenters will get on there and they'll say, this is an injustice. It's not, it's not right for kids to grow up without a dad. That kid's going to experience father hunger. That kid has a higher likelihood of having identity struggles. Kids that are created through third-party reproduction often feel commodified. I mean, like we are like training people to look at this from the child's perspective, because honestly, not a lot of politicians are interested. And the, the institutions, not the Austin Institute, but the institutions have been captured. I mean, like who is going to do this? And the answer is just ordinary people. That's who's going to do it. Again, I completely agree with you because even my interest in this thing started as I was telling you after, you know, before this podcast in 2008, looking at an ad that was somewhere on campus in Berkeley that was giving prizes to eggs if you were, you know, a particular age and studying particular in a particular university. And it just, that, that thing as a woman that had desired an intact family, it just made me cry like on the spot because that was unjust. So perhaps as parents that are doing this because they do have kids and perhaps there's a lot of children that have suffered somehow this new, the redefinition of the family that will advocate for the next ones because we don't want to replicate it. I think what you're saying is, is exactly right. You know, we've been fighting abortion for 50 years and we've started to see some successes. We have done that despite the fact that the ultimate victims are dead. Like those victims can't speak for themselves. You've got a few survivors of abortion that can speak up, but largely we've erased the victims. That's not how it is with modern families. Those kids are going to grow up. They're going to start talking, right? We already see, you know, kids of divorce that are able to say that wasn't awesome. And look at you, you're starting the reading group and the support group about that one issue. Now we're starting to see children created through sperm donation, even if they were raised by heterosexual couples say, whoa, we have a right to know who we came from. We have a right to our medical information. I don't know if I'm dating my sister. I mean, there's problems with this. And, you know, it'll probably be a couple decades, but we'll start to hear from the kids created through surrogacy as well. You know, the kids with two moms and two dads, they're the most in the closet of all of them. You can read their stories on our website. And it's just about the only place where you're going to find those kids that are willing to be honest because we offer them some cover. But like they, these victims of modern families and family redefinition, they're alive and they're going to start talking about it. And they're going to be the ones that are starting to carry this message out to the world because they are not going to be able to paper over the harm or the cost to, that you know they've paid. Yeah, and you say you offer them a cover, which is, you know, the way to go for them to be feel free to say, because as you were saying before, the, the child wants to cheer up the parent. But also, don't you think that maybe psychologically there is this desire to justify, like that there is a, a primordial need to justify your, like to say, my mom is the best. Therefore, whatever she did is the right, the absolute best thing. And I am the problem. If I am not accepting it, I am the one who has a prejudice or a bias or, you know, I've read too much uh, Western white literature and therefore I still believe, you know, like, yeah, what would you say to that, you know, to the child growing up with that feeling? Well, you know, what I've noticed, because gathering the stories of kids who grew up in modern families is a huge part of our work. Um, We have a story bank on our website. We've got over 100 stories in our book. I mean, we center the child's story in everything that we do. But I have noticed that 
you generally don't have kids that are able to honestly reflect on their childhood until they've been out of the home for about 10 years. Like a lot of the times they're either late 20s at the earliest, or it's when they're starting their own families that they go, oh my gosh, this is what it's like to like raise a kid with their father. Like, look at how he loves her. I never got that kind of love. Oh my gosh. I just wish that I had had a dad who was cherishing me like that. You know, we've got stories of kids who were created through sperm donation who are like, yeah, it's no big deal. I don't even care. And then they have a child and they're looking at them and they're going, this is mine in a way that I can't say that I belonged to my father. I respected my dad, but like, it's a lot of the times you have to have some distance from your childhood. You have to start your own family a lot of the time. And then, and then it often hits kids like a Mack truck. Yeah. I, you know, somehow when I talk about my personal story, I think that uh, as a Christian, that the Holy Spirit has been very gentle to me because he has revealed slowly, but it's true. It takes physical distance, time distance, and it's hard to accept. It's really hard to accept. So this is also a message, you know, and it's not because something it's hard to accept that makes this untrue. Because I think that we live in a culture where if something is not easy to accept and doesn't, you know, it doesn't taste good, then it's probably wrong. And, and as you were mm-hmm. saying that, you know, even when in the workout, like things that pain is not necessarily, does not necessarily mean that we're doing something wrong. Sometimes pain is what you need to go through to get to the truth. Good way to put it. Yeah. I have so many things I wanted to ask you, but I know you are, you are a very busy woman and with a new book coming out and yeah, you, you have a lot of interviews and meetings and I know you also have a date day, which is that with true with, with your husband? Do you, have you like a selected uh, date? Yeah. The date, the date is over. It's always a Friday morning walk. We always clear our calendar to um, like process and hang out for a walk and a coffee. So yep, that happened already. Yeah. See, that's and another so lesson that as you know, if you don't have the right family environment, you don't learn. And I'm I've heard this, you know, make it a point that you still have a date, that you still have some time together, even 10 years into 20 years into the marriage. There was only one one more thing that I wanted to ask you. So we've talked about reproductive technology, you know, somehow. But there, when you say, I, at this, I don't know if you address this, but like the problem of technology posed in the other way. So the technology of the smartphones and uh, storing of data and pornography. And do you, is that something else that, you know, from a child perspective, if the children are at the center, should it be the same way it is? Should we have their pictures on Instagram even before they can recognize their own face in the mirror or what? Uh, Good questions. You know, so then before us focuses on family structure only, children's right to their mother and father. But what you'll notice is children are under attack in pretty much every way a child can be under attack these days. That I wrote an article in Newsweek a few months ago called How the GOP Can Become the Children First Party or the Party of Children or something. And it's really about how children's right to life, their right to their mother and father, their right to innocence, and their right to an intact body are under attack. And like all of these fundamental child rights are under assault right now. And children have a right to innocence. What we put in front of them matters. You know, what they see, what they're exposed to, like it matters. Children have a right to be protected in terms of what they're seeing and what they're being exposed to. And 
we are violating that through pornography, through technology, through radical sex ed curriculum that innocence, you know, violates children's innocence. And so we don't specifically deal with that at them before us, but I certainly talk about it, you know, in my writing. And if you're on Twitter, I will be talking about that as well, because really that's it. Like I generally get along with everybody and I want to be friends with everybody until you come for the kids. And that's when I'm like, and I'm going to cut you like, get away from the kids, leave the kids alone, like protect kids. So that's what the first book is about when it comes to family structure. Um, The second book is about, I want to protect my kids. I want to protect my kids from the woke virus, the progressive mindset that is so damaging and so distorted and so destructive for kids. So it's like child protection is so critical. There's so many ways that they are under attack. Technology is a big part of it. And we need to get very serious about, about defending them because they can't defend themselves. And you said you have children. I've got four and they're great. How old are they? 20, 18, 16, and 14. So they totally understand your work. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're great. And um, they're very savvy. You know, my co-author and I have written both books together and we have between the two families, there's seven kids so we've got a variety of personalities. We've got, you know, boys and girls, they've largely gone to public schools. So we've just gotten very serious about being honest with our kids about all these worldview issues. They've heard me talk about family structure and surrogacy and gay adoption and all of this forever and ever and ever. And that's actually a big part of training is just letting your kids see and hear the things you're seeing and you're hearing, like you replicate yourself in your kids. And you do that by just kind of letting them behold who you are. So they can also become those kinds of experts too. So lots of good tactics. Um, but you really can't tell your kids too little about all of the things that the world is going to lie to them about. You definitely, you know, in the next book, we talk about sort of age appropriate strategies for how to introduce those subjects in ways that don't violate kids' innocence, but also don't allow them to be taken captive. So passionate about kids, think they need to be defended. And I think everybody should be doing it. Yeah. And I think that everyone should get both books that you wrote, Them Before Us and How to Raise Kids and, you know, and Protect Them from the Walk Virus, which I would assume, you know, is just a virus that also convinces them that the problem is that they are the problems if they're unhappy in today's world, which as we know, today's world is not exactly the best place to be happy even though we're making a big deal about happiness and it's all about you and about personal fulfillment. I want to thank you immensely for your work. And as you know, not just because you did it for us, definitely not, but for all the people here that care even just a little bit about the future of the world, not just about children, about the future, because one day we'll not be here and anyone who's younger than us is going to be there. So if you care about that future, uh, look up for it. Click the link to them before us and make a donation to Katie's amazing work. I want to thank you again and I hope to see you again soon here or where are you based? I'm in Seattle. Okay, well, I don't know if I'm going to, if I have a trip planned to Seattle, but you might be the reason to do that. Thank you again, Katie. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this, we can continue our programming, and of course, 
We will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.